Well, good morning. Uh, a couple of couple of things I want to announce before we get into God's Word, and the, the first is that um, you should have gotten an email regarding the ABF schedule this summer, and one of those dates uh, is July 10th, and that day we're going to have, for those who are interested in learning more or, or just kind of having kind of brainstorming session about a short-term mission trip next summer. We're going to have a meeting to kind of talk about that and get some thoughts and some ideas from, from you. So if you have any interest at all, your, your presence at that meeting does not mean that you're signing up to be a part of that trip, but that you are just learning more about it or having some input in that. So <clears throat> um, Keith uh, Tomes is going to lead that meeting, uh, and so we're going to just gather that, that day during the Sunday School or ABF time and uh, brainstorm a little about that. Uh, July 10th, so be thinking and, and uh, praying about that. Also, I want to make an announcement. Uh, you'll recall that uh, a few years back, we had the opportunity as a church to ordain Philip McDonald. Uh, Philip uh, married uh, Joanna um, uh, Scott, and uh, so he is presently serving at IBC as, as one of the pastors there. Last Sunday, they announced to their church that they are involved in a secession plan for Pastor Mark, who is now, what, 67, 68 years old? And uh, he's hoping to be uh, retired, if you will, by 70. And so they've been praying and working on a secession plan. And so they identified Philip to be the next pastor, uh, Lord willing, uh, and they're going to work in this process over the next few years of preparing him to take over as the lead teaching pastor of IBC. And so I just wanted to share that with you. If you hadn't heard yet, uh, many of you know Philip and, and Joanna. And uh, so you could be praying for them in this process as they move toward that. And uh, IBC as they move uh, from transitioning. That's not an easy thing to do. Uh, Mark has been there how many years, Jeff? 30, 30 some years he's been pastor there. And so uh, that's not an easy thing to transition uh, for a congregation to do that. So be praying for them and that process as you as you think about that. So we're excited about that for Philip and Joanna and, and for IBC. Well, let's uh, let's pray together and we're going to get into into God's word uh, this morning. Our gracious Father, as we have gathered here today, we've come that we might worship you, that we might say thank you to you for your incredible grace and mercy in our life, for saving us from our sin, for putting your spirit into us through him who might give us guidance, encouragement, help, understanding direction, gifting, and so many more things that the Holy Spirit does within our lives. So we're thankful to you, Lord. Thankful for your word. As we begin working through Psalm 119 and our, our themes of worship, Lord, this psalm is all about your word. So give us a, a deeper love 
for the Word of God as we, we go through these times of worship centered around these passages. This Word is living and active. And it, it does a work in us as we allow the Word to get into us by, by receiving the truths, by meditating, memorizing, meditating upon the Word of God. We, we let the Word get into us, Father, and that Word does a transforming work to renew our minds, transform our lives. And for that, we are grateful. We ask today that You would teach us from Your Word as we begin to look at these Old Testament poetic books. Give us a better understanding of what's going on in these books, a, a better understanding of, of what you're communicating to us and how valuable these books are to us as we walk this journey of life until you call us home. So we commit this time into your hands. Thank you for it. Be our teacher and our guide in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, <clears throat> If I were to ask you to raise your hand, um, if you've ever experienced suffering or pain, if you've ever experienced grief or loss, if you've ever been discouraged or feeling a sense of despair, I would imagine that most, if not all of us, would raise our hand. Right? If you've walked in this life and on this globe for more than a few years, you've experienced these kinds of things at some point, at some level. And often we find ourselves asking the question, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is it happening now? What did I do to deserve this? Why am I going through this thing right now? And a lot of times people, when they go through suffering or pain of some kind, they, they think about the story of Job. I wonder if when we are going through this and we think about Job, if we ever go to the book of Job, first of all, and secondly, if we do, do we ever find in that book what we're really looking for? Most of what we know about Job is located in the first two chapters of the book of Job. There are 40 more chapters. There's a lot that God wants to communicate to us in this book that we might not get if we don't understand the book as a whole. Yes, we can identify that, yes, Job suffered and we're suffering, and, but that seems to be oftentimes where it ends. And that may bring a little bit of comfort because, you know, misery likes com company. And so we say, well, I'm not the only one. Job went through it. And, but do we find in this book what God intended for us in revealing that to us? And so today we're going to, as we begin this kind of, this uh, um, expedition through Old Testament poetic books, we want to begin here with the book of Job. Let me give you a little background. Uh, first of all, the, when did the events that are recorded in Job take place historically? It's kind of a big question 
that many wonder about and, and, and kind of try to understand because there's nothing in the book of Job um, that indicates to us, no historic markers here that tell us kind of when this happened. But there are some clues, and I'll share a few with you. First of all, at the end of the book of Job, we're told that Job lived 140 years after all these events, which probably means he was 200 years old when he finally died. And that gives us an indication that he probably lived a lot earlier than many of the other poetic books in the time frame that those were were written in or uh, the events of those. Many believe that Job lived all the way back in the time of the patriarchs, which is in Genesis, between probably chapters 11 and chapter 12, somewhere around that time frame. Chapter 11, we see the Tower of Babel, all the way back there. And in chapter 12, we see God calling out Abram from Ur of Chaldees and and, uh, giving a covenant, making a covenant with Abram that he would be the father of, of, uh, of, of many children, and that that through him many, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through his seed. And this whole covenant that led into uh, the nation of Israel. And and so many believe that Job lived during that period of time. Because again, that's that's those individuals that lived in that time lived to be in that age range. And as you go further into history, people didn't live that long, typically speaking. Another marker, if you will, is that Job's wealth is measured in um, livestock, not in gold and silver. And so that indicates a, a time frame in which he lived. Also, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Job is considered the priest of his own family. And he offers sacrifices as such. And so that gives us an indication of that time frame. There's also no reference at all in the book of Job to the nation of Israel. There's no reference to the Exodus. There's no reference to uh, the Mosaic Law or to the Tabernacle or any of those things that that came uh, after the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, which would have been most likely referred to in some way. If he lived after that. So these and there are others, and I'm not going to go into all those, but just to give you a kind of an understanding of when the book of Job, the story, the history of that, when that took place. So we're talking about an early, early date for when these events happened. The basic question of the book is this. Why do the righteous suffer if God is indeed loving and all-powerful? Anyone ever wondered that? Anyone ever been asked that question? You're a Christian. Tell me this. If God is really in control, if God is really loving, if God is all-powerful, why do people, good people, suffer? That's the question. But suffering itself is not the central theme of the book of Job. Rather, the focus is on what Job learns through his suffering. And the one thing that Job learned more than anything else is that God indeed is sovereign 
over all of His creation. And as the sovereign God, He is worthy of our worship. Regardless, regardless of what He chooses to do or allows to happen. Job must learn to trust in the goodness and power of God in adversity by enlarging his concept of who God is. God's ways are oftentimes incomprehensible to us. But he can also and always be trusted. God is worthy of our trust even when life isn't going the way we want it to. Even when horrific things take place. God is worthy. This is the theme of this book. Just as a kind of a general overview, a survey, if you will, the book of Job concerns the transforming crisis in the, in the life of this great man. He loses everything he has. His wealth, and he was a very wealthy man. He loses his wealth. He loses his children. And he loses his health. All in a very short period of time. Which causes him to wrestle with the question, why? The book begins with a heavenly dialogue between God and Satan. And then moves to an earthly debate or or conversation, dialogue, if you will, between Job and his friends. And then closes with a dialogue between God and Job. Kind of more of a monologue, if you will. God does most of the speaking. God asks a bunch of questions of Job. And Job finds himself unable and unwilling to answer because he realizes He has no answer. Job's trust in God, or Job's trust in God, changes from complaining and a growing self-righteousness to repentance, which leads to restoration. The trials bring about an important transformation. The man at the beginning of the book is not the man at the end of the book. It all comes through the process of experiencing suffering and loss and trial and wrestling with the reality, who is this God that would let this happen to me? Who it is claimed at the very beginning is blameless and upright, a God-fearing man who turns away from evil. God Himself acknowledges this about Job. Why would God let this man Possibly one of, if not the most godly man on earth at that time, experienced so much stuff. That's what Job was wrestling with. Have you ever been there? Have you ever thought, why God, why me? I have lived my life to try to please you. I've I've given up certain things that I wanted to be a part of in my flesh, but I've, I've chosen to give that up so I can walk with you, so I can serve you, so I can live for you. And this is how I get repaid. Ever wonder that? That's what Job was wrestling with. And his friends were trying to give him an answer. 
God shows up. God helps him see who God really is. Gives him a, a bigger concept of God. And when he got a bigger concept of God, he realized God is worthy no matter what. God is worthy of my trust. God is worthy of my worship. God is worthy of me resting in the reality and repenting of a self-focused, self-righteous mentality that could only have been revealed through a deep, deep suffering. So that's kind of the overview. Now we want to spend a little bit more time processing some of this. And I am very aware that we're not going to get through all that I have before me this morning. And so we're going to... uh, we're going to only get about, uh, well, we're only going to get to scene one today. Um, but what I'd like to do is I'd like to, to read for us chapters one and two. Um, this, again, is probably what we're most familiar with, but it sets the stage for the entire book. This, this dialogue between God and Satan, and we see then how that dialogue plays out on earth. And keep in mind, Job has no idea of what's happening in heaven. We are privileged to have the veil open and we're given, a, we're given a, 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 the opportunity to see what's going on here. So let me read Job chapters 1 and 2. There was a man in the land of Uz, Uz, I'm not sure how that's pronounced, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it came about that when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil, And Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all he had on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. And so Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. 
Now it happened on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. A message came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians attacked and took them. And he also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, another also came and said, The the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I have come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. And the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one on the earth like him, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you've incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. His wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his wife. Now when Job's three friends heard of all his adversity had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. And they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word with him, for they saw the pain of their grief. You want to talk about suffering? Can you imagine that day when one servant after another came with news of 
worst, worst things happen. Satan's intention, you're like, oh, I know how to get this guy. Take all that away. Oh, man. Surely he will curse God to his face. And what does Job do? He falls down and he worships God. Again, he has no idea the conversation that took place. It's incredible. So here we have the question. Have you considered my servant Job? Considered my servant Job. In the introduction to the chapter on Job in the in the book Old Testament Survey, the writers say this: Have you considered my servant Job? The pointed question that Yahweh put to Satan triggered the forty-two chapters of suffering, complaint, argument, and response that comprise the book of Job. Few stories in the literature of human experience have such power to stretch minds, tax consciences, and expand vision as does Job's. No one who witnesses the disaster in the land of Uz, eavesdrops on the conversations of Yahweh in Yahweh's court, arbitrates the debate between Job and his friends, or shivers at the voice from the whirlwind can be the same again. One's view of divine sovereignty and freedom, as well as one's picture of human suffering and arrogance and integrity, will be altered forever. That is both the danger and the blessing of the book of Job. Is it disturbing to you at all to see God initiating this question? So where have you been, Satan? Ah, just roaming around the earth. Did you see Job? Have you seen my, my servant Job? Have you considered him? Can you imagine? It's just God's idea. Not Satan. Satan doesn't come and say, hey God, what about Job? No, God says, have you considered my servant Job? Now we can't assume that this dialogue is happening in heaven every time we suffer or go through something. But we can assume this. There is nothing the enemy is permitted to do apart from God's permission. He can't do anything to you and I unless God gives them permission. Now that may be encouraging or it may be discouraging. Because now we're faced with the reality Who do I blame? Who do I look to? How do I make sense of all of this? See, it's nice to think we can just blame Satan. But this isn't Satan's idea. And that can be somewhat of a disturbing thought. What is Satan's answer to God's question? Absolutely. Yeah, he's blameless and upright and fearing God and turning away from evil because you've given him everything. You've done everything for this guy. He serves you because you're good to him. Because Satan can't conceive of any other reason why anybody would be good and upright and fear God. 
take away everything you've done for him and see what he does. I guarantee you he'll curse you to your face. Because Satan and those who follow in his footsteps, if you will, who, who live that way, who live outside of a covenant relationship and an understanding of God, cannot conceive of the trusting relationship we have with God. That would cause us to live, to sacrifice, to make decisions that would put ourselves aside and look to honor God. What would cause David Jor to decide to leave all the comforts of this country and to go live around the world in places where you know you don't always get hot water, you don't always have the things that we have, we take for granted. What would cause a person to do that? A love for Jesus, a love for God. An understanding of something that this world knows not of. Not even Satan can understand. And the only way have this revealed for God to give him permission so that God can reveal the reality of Job's heart it had nothing to do with the blessings of God or standing it had everything to do with the relationship he had with God In the Expositor's Bible Commentary, the, the author in, writes this regarding this, this section about the accusation or the, uh, the in interaction between God and, and Satan. He says, as in Genesis 3, God sets the stage and allows man to be put to the test. Here the Lord sees fit to use secondary means to accomplish his purpose, secondary being Satan. That purpose is not just to test Job as an end in itself, but to give Job the opportunity to honor his Lord and to whom he has pledged his allegiance with solemn oath. That allegiance becomes a significant part of the cosmic struggle between Job's adversary and the Lord. Will Job curse God and die? Understanding this struggle was basic to understanding the book of Job as well as the whole historic religious drama of the Bible. The accuser insinuates that Job's allegiance is hypocritical. If only God would remove the protective hedge he has placed about Job, this devout servant would certainly curse God to his face. The attack is on God, uh, the attack is on God through Job. And the only way the accuser can be proven false is through Job. You see, Satan is not necessarily interested in attacking Job, in other words interested in attacking God. So he seeks to do that through God's servant. Satan 
He says, it's so given, um, Satan is, so Satan is given limited but gradually increased access to Job. First his possessions, then his family, and finally to his physical well-being. But through it all, the primary pur- purpose of Job's suffering, unbeknownst to him, was that he should stand before men and angels as a trophy of the saving might of God, an exhibit of that divine wisdom which is an archetype source and foundation of true human wisdom. There are things going on we do not understand. We are apart as we walk this earth of God's grand plan. And because our insight and our wisdom is finite, we cannot fathom what God is doing beyond our life, but through our life. We get a glimpse as we look at this book because we see the dialogue. So what is the result? Have you considered my servant Job? The question, of course, serves you because you're good to him. The result is God gives Satan permission to inflict pain, suffering, loss, grief. Incredible difficulty. See, there is, again, there is more going on behind the scenes of our lives than we understand. One day, right, when we when we enter into glory, right, the veil will be opened and we'll get to see. But right now, we see through a, a, a mirror dimly, right, a glass dimly. We must trust God that He knows what He's doing. That He has... <coughs> A plan that is operating behind the veil. We don't, we don't get the opportunity to see it yet. Which means we've got to exercise faith. We've got to exercise trust in the sovereignty, the goodness, the mercy of God. Satan has a plan. No question. He's working to try to destroy us. Not because he cares much about us, but because he wants to. He wants to bring pain. He wants to bring whatever he can to his ultimate enemy, God. Because he hates God, so he hates you and he hates me. And when you and I walk through life difficulty pain struggle when we make decisions to die to ourselves and live for Christ God is glorified and Satan is defeated 
when we choose to live for ourselves and we choose to do what is only in our best interest and what makes sense to us only, we're oftentimes playing right into the hands of the enemy. Unbeknownst to us. And so God will allow us to experience pain, suffering, loss, difficulty, to give us the opportunity in those moments to trust God. Let me conclude our time by reading a few sections from the book Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. Next week we'll pick up with the second point of this, the second part of the, or the second dialogue. But he, he writes this in his book, Trusting God. There is no question that God's people live in a hostile world. We have an enemy, the devil, who prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He wants to sift us like wheat, as he did with Peter. Or make us curse God, as he tried to get Job to do. <clears throat> God does not spare us from the ravages of disease, heartache, and disappointment of this sin-cursed world. But God is able to take all of these elements, the bad as well as the good, and make full use of every one of them. As someone years ago wrote, a lesser wisdom than the divine would feel impelled to forbid, to circumvent, or to resist the outworking of these hellish plans. It is a fact that often God's people themselves try to do this themselves or cry unceasingly to the Lord that He may do it for them. So it is that prayers often seem to lie unanswered. For we are being handled by a wisdom which is perfect. A wisdom which can achieve what it intends by taking hold of things and people which are meant for evil and making them work together for good. God's infinite wisdom, then, is displayed in bringing good out of evil, beauty out of ashes. It is displayed in turning all the forces of evil that rage against His children into good for them. But the good that He brings about is often different than the good we envision. So, again, we are left to say, Lord, I trust you. You know what you're doing. And in this chapter, he references uh, Romans 8, 28, right? God causes all things to work together for good for them that love him and are called according to his purpose. We often stop there. We say, well, okay, God's going to bring some good, and I already know what that good is going to be, and so he's going to bring this about. And the next verse says, right, that God's intention is to conform you to the will of his, or to, to the likeness of his son. We can't we can't divorce the two. And so the good that God is doing in your life and in mine through the things we experience is not the good we think should come or the good that we often want to come. It's the good of becoming more like Jesus. And you remember we're told in the New Testament that even Jesus learned obedience through the things that he what? Suffered. 
He goes on to say this. As he appeals to the Scriptures themselves as examples of this. Not just Job, but others. He says, Joseph's brothers thought they were getting rid of their brother of whom they were exceedingly jealous. But God planned all along to use their scheme to send Joseph ahead of them to be their provider during the seven years of famine. They intended their actions for evil, but God intended them for good. Saul sought to kill David because David was receiving more praise for his military prowess than, than was Saul. But God used those months and years when David was hiding from Saul to build into David the character that made him a great king and a man after God's own heart. Many of the most meaningful psalms were apparently written during those months. One of my favorites, he writes, is Psalm 34. It was written during a time when David was reduced to acting like an insane man for fear of a heathen king. Yet this is the psalm that I most frequently turn to when I struggle with discouragement. What Saul meant for evil, God meant for good. Saul thought that by getting God to allow him to afflict Job, he would thereby get Job to curse God to his face. But he succeeded only in being an instrument to bring Job into a deeper and more reverent relationship with God. Satan was given permission to afflict Paul with a thorn in the flesh to torment him. Paul asked over and over and over again for God to remove it, but God said, no. My grace is sufficient. Satan probably thought that he would nullify, that he would thereby nullify the effectiveness of Paul's ministry. Well, I know what I'm going to do. This great Paul, this apostle of the Gentiles, <laughs> I'll inflict him, and then he will turn away and won't serve God. Instead, he succeeded only in putting Paul in the circumstance where Paul learned experientially the sufficiency of God's grace and that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Think of how many thousands of believers down through the centuries have found God's grace to be sufficient for them through meditating on God's words to Paul at that time. My grace is sufficient for you. You see, we're engaged in a plan and a purpose that's far bigger than themselves. We've been invited in. And God says, do you want me to use you? Do you want me to work through your life? Do you want to be like Jesus? Yes, I'm signing up for that. But then God says, okay, do you trust me to get you there? Yeah. But then as soon as something comes that doesn't fit our plan, we start wondering, where's God? This isn't what I signed up for. Oh, yeah, you do. Because God knows the only way to get where you want to be is through the road of difficulty, suffering, pain, loss, grief. So, Ask ourselves, do I want to know God like that? Do I want to be like Jesus? Do I want Jesus to have full control of my life? Do I want to be used effectively for God and His purposes in this life? See, we make that decision and we entrust ourselves to God and we say, God, you bring it about. However, you know best in your infinite wisdom 
complete love and sovereignty. Give me the grace to trust you as I'm walking through that. Book of Job allows us to see that journey as he, as he interacts with his friends and as he comes to that conclusion at the end as we look at that. Oh, Father, thank you for this book. Thank you that we get the glimpse into the throne room Father, too often we read this, these first two chapters, and our first thought is, God, how come Satan gets to talk to God? He's evil and God is good. And we, we go to those places. We miss. We miss everything that's really going on here. We miss the fact that you've given us the, the privilege into the sovereignty, the sovereign power and authority of God. And that Satan has no power whatsoever except what God would permit him because God will use him as an instrument in his purposes to accomplish his ultimate work. Thank you for, for this book. Challenge us, Lord, as we consider what do I really want my life to be? Do I really want to walk closely with God? Do I really want to know God deeply, intimately? Do I really want to be like Christ? Because God, you know how to get us there. And it doesn't always feel good. Teach us to trust you. To believe goodness and the power of God. We thank you, Lord. We understand that we, on this side of all of that, we, we, what we've been through we get, but what we're going to go through we don't know yet. We don't understand. We don't know how severe it will be, but we, we want to take a stand in this moment and say, God, I trust you. hell or high water, I trust you. Whatever. Thank you that you're good. We pray these things in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, our Savior, the one who died and rose from the dead, now seated at the right hand of the Father.